How about now? Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. How's everyone doing tonight? It's an interesting day. Yes. Yeah, different. How many people found uh, parts of today challenging? Some, yeah. Yes. These human relationships. It's so much easier when we're just like this. So this is the talk now. <laughs> How many times have you heard yourself ask this or, or, or another student, they'll, you know, they'll say, like, why should I pay attention to this? Or, or, or you know, what, what's the reason for paying attention to this? And the teacher says, because it's happening. Because that's what's happening. Have you heard that? It's a very common thing. We, we, we're aware of what's present. Why? Because it's what's happening. It's what's uh, presenting it to our, us in our life at that moment. And, you know, it could be anything. There's one thing that's happening now, and um, it's not unique to any one of us. Um, it uh, is and will be uh, impacting uh, us for a long time. And that thing that's happening that I'd like to talk about tonight is global climate change. And just this idea, just to kind of to frame the talk that it's the same reason on one level that you would be aware of pain in your knee. Why? Because it's what's happening and, it, and, it, and in order to have a, a correct relationship with it or a helpful relationship with it, it's good to get to know it and to connect with it and learn about it and learn about um, what our relationship to it might be. Right? So we do that with everything, with a thought, with the sound of a cricket. And so because it's happening, then the practice tells us it would be good to do that with global climate change as well. So this can be like a little bit of an um, interesting subject, um, sometimes maybe hard. So I want you to uh, just keep checking in with your bodies, perhaps uh, notice any reactivity you might have. Um, it's not gonna be a doom and gloom talk, so, so don't worry about that. Um, but it might be good to just stay connected and feel into, um, oh, how am I actually relating to this? I'm not gonna go into a lot of statistics here and like, how many feet sea level is going to rise or how many degrees Celsius the average temperature is going to go up or, you know, by what date will there be no ice in the Arctic, that kind of stuff. That information is out there. It's, it's available. It's easy to find. And if that interests you, you know, you can do that. So this talk isn't going to kind of go down that road. This is more about um, beginning to talk about and grapple with this situation that is currently impacting us and will continue to impact us on a, on a greater and greater level far into the future. This is not, this is gonna keep going. Um, 
So it's very important to consciously turn towards what's occurring. And the reason that's important to consciously do it is uh, there's this interesting study that um, I read about where the, um, you know, the study uh, subjects, they were put into a room and they were told to fill out some form. Like that's what they thought they were doing, filling, you know. And what they did, there was a, uh, an air vent and they pumped in smoke through the air vent. And when that happened, the people would see that and go, wow, something's wrong. We're out of here. They'd go out of the room and they'd, they'd go to the researchers and say, hey, there's, you know, there's something wrong in that room. Smoke's coming out of the vent. So like kind of very natural and appropriate behavior. Yeah. Then they would have, so let's say there would be six people. Then they did it again with five subjects and one plant. One person wasn't a subject. They were in on what was going on. They would pump smoke in again, and the plant wouldn't notice it. They would just keep, they would keep filling out their thing. And they, even as it poured into the room, they would just keep filling it out. And, to, and you know, they did this many, many times, and people would like, look at the person who wasn't reacting and like, keep doing what they were doing. They wouldn't, they wouldn't get up and leave you know, until much, much later there was a really strong impact of that person carrying on with business as usual and in the face of carrying on with business as usual when people were faced with that they didn't their own natural response to what was difficult went out the window and i tell that story because this is actually where we're at with this there are, the smoke is coming through the, the vents. It's very clear. But there are strong forces, which I'll talk about after, that are carrying on with business as usual, and we all get caught up in it. We get frozen. And there's not, there's not a national dialogue about it, really. It's, um, we're like those other people who see, well, some, something's not reacting to this. Well, okay. So it's for that reason alone, it's helpful to consciously turn towards and start to talk about this so we break the freeze. For us as Dharma practitioners, um, this talk is to show how the teachings that we've all been studying and practicing here, how they can shed light both on how we've gotten to this point and what an appropriate response might be. And just to be clear, um, climate change is not a political issue. I'm not sitting up here uh, talking politically from one side or another. Of course, climate change does uh, end up being talked about in politics, but it's, um, it's not a political thing. It's about the truth of what's happening right now what's going to happen in the near future, and what is going to happen in 50 or 100 years. The biosphere, which is that layer of life on the earth from the few inches down in the soil up to some level in the atmosphere where birds and insects live, is very thin, quite, quite thin. 
is rapidly changing, rapidly, faster than it ever has in history. And the species that live in this biosphere and in turn make up part of it, um, they're suffering and they're dying off. We are currently in the midst of the largest species die-off, or you could say mass extinction, since when the dinosaurs died out. I don't know what that number is, like 60 million or something like that, long time ago. People are suffering, and they will continue to suffer at an exponentially increasing rate as time goes by. So this is not a political issue. It's a moral issue. It transcends the political, cultural, and religious boundaries because it's happening to the whole planet. Now, I just want to say, even though all people, I just said, will be impacted and will be increasingly impacted by climate change, not everyone actually will be impacted in the same way. And unfortunately, as with other things, like um, when there's political turmoil or economic turmoil, things like that, people who are the most advantaged can tend to be uh, more um, buffered from that and people who tend to be more disadvantaged take the brunt of it, yeah? And so it's going to be the same way, at least up to some degree, with climate change. People who are more advantaged will have some buffering from it. And the disadvantaged people, um, or I should say disenfranchised people, are going to really bear the brunt of it. But everyone will be impacted. Because even the people who might be quite buffered from it, um, it's going to depend on how they work with that gap between themselves and disenfranchised people. If, if they don't bridge that gap somehow consciously and kind of just stay in the kind of white castle or whatever, um, they're not going to be maybe impacted by maybe at least for some time, so much on a physical level. But to do that, that level of cutting off that one would have to do, they're going to be impacted by that. They're going to have to live with that. And the analogy that came to me was when the Titanic sank and the people in first class were in the lifeboats and the people in second and third class didn't get to be in the lifeboats. And there they were in the lifeboats and the ship is sinking and you know people are, are suffering. So yes, they were safe and dry in their lifeboats, but they have to live with the knowledge that maybe they didn't row back. They didn't bridge that gap. They didn't row back for the people. We're safe over here. So everyone's going to be impacted. Everyone's going to have to deal with this, even if it's in slightly different ways. Some might be more physical. Some people might be dealing with it more on the heart-mind level. So, just to say that's about as grim as it's going to get in the talk. I want to look at two questions or explore two questions for the rest of the talk. How do the teachings of the Dharma shed light on global climate change? And then how can we respond to such a huge, huge issue? And what might an appropriate response be? 
One of the uh, first kind of Dharma teachings that just popped into my head and that you've heard a lot about and, and not just heard about but saw in your own hearts and minds on this retreat that really uh, interfaces deeply and is really a root cause of um, climate change is this strong habit pattern we have for desiring sense pleasure. We like what's pleasant. We're just kind of built for that. And we don't like what's unpleasant. This is, uh, we've talked about the Four Noble Truths. The truth of suffering, and then the second truth, it's cause, right? The cause in that medical model of, of the disease or what's difficult. Desire for sense pleasures, that's the second noble truth. So it's the cause of suffering in general, and in terms of global climate change, it's a big cause of global climate change. So we live in a world that is constantly changing. It's constantly dishing up this and that. There's sound and silence, sound and silence. Some of what gets dished up is pleasurable to us. It feels good to our senses. It's enjoyable. Some of what gets, gets dished up is unpleasant. It doesn't feel good to our senses. Okay, that's just how it is. That's the truth of the world that we live in. So that's that truth. And then we have this deep, deep habit pattern in our mind of only wanting what's pleasurable and not wanting what's unpleasurable. So there's discord there, yeah? Can you see? There's discord with the way things actually are. And it actually takes energy to stay in discord with the way things are. So, discord with the way things are. Gravity wants this to be down there. That's the truth of the realm that we live in. Yeah, I can fight that truth for a while, but it's taking increasing and increasing energy to do that. I can feel my arms starting to shake. You know, it takes its toll. The longer we stay out of alignment, you might say, with the truth of how things are, the more energy it takes to do it. As a species, we've, especially here in the West, I must say, we are living out of alignment with the truth of the way things are. And it takes a ton of energy, literal energy, like burning coal and oil, to do that. It just does. Warm day outside, 85. 70 degrees in here. There's a gap. It feels better at 70 and dry instead of 85 and humid. It's more pleasant. We like it that way. We make it that way. Something's running that air conditioner. Electricity. It comes from someplace. It takes energy to do that. In the winter, our houses, we want them warm. It's not about it's not, this to say, this is not about being like uncomfortable. This is, we should all be uncomfortable and flog ourselves and then we'll be enlightened, you know, or, or global climate change will stop. It's not about that, but I'm just showing that this, this sense of not being 
in tune with how things are takes energy. 10 degrees below zero outside in the winter, 70 degrees in the house takes energy to keep that discord. It wants to go. The house wants to naturally reach the outside temperature. If left to its own, that's what would happen. It would just come into balance. Cities in the desert. Oh my God. <laughs> huge, huge amounts of energy. Do you, do you know the Colorado River does not reach the ocean? It runs dry a hundred miles from the ocean. So much water is pumped out of it, it's pumped dry. So that cities can be in the desert. We like it when it's sunny and 80 in January. We don't like it up north or out east when it's snowing cold. Let's go to the desert and live. We can, with our technology, we can, but it still takes energy to, to do that. Houses built solely for the view and not for their uh, particular placement on the land that might, um, you know, actualize some solar gain from south-facing walls or windows. Repainting the inside of the, our house when it doesn't need to because we don't like the color anymore. It takes energy. Paint comes from oil. These aren't wrong or bad. It's just the more and more we live our lives solely based on maximizing pleasant and minimizing unpleasant. It's not that we shouldn't do that, but if that's like the, um, the, 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 the main paradigm of our society, then we're going to use a lot of energy doing it because it's not in, in alignment with the truth of how things are. You know, some people will say, or I've heard this, that the Buddha was the first environmentalist. Um, not because he was out there like calling a sign, you know, stop drilling or whatever. Um, but because he was an activist for people to see things as they were. That's what he did. He walked around saying, follow these teachings and you'll see the truth of how things are. And when we see the truth of how things are, we can be in accord with the way things are. And when we're in accord with the way things are, it takes less energy. This is the uh, Tibetan teacher, Atisha. Friends, the things you desire give no more satisfaction than drinking seawater. Therefore, practice contentment. Contentment with the way things are. They're pleasant, okay. They're unpleasant, okay. Practicing contentment naturally lowers our carbon footprint. You don't hear that on the news much. How do we lower our carbon from, oh, compact fluorescent light bulbs, whatever. Practicing contentment lowers our carbon footprint. I just had something good to say and then it went. <laughs> 
It's all right. <clears throat> so this first uh, Dharma principle that really is uh, one of the pillars that supports global climate change is our addiction, really. Strong, strong habit pattern in the heart and mind for sense pleasures. Then another principle that comes into play is uh, the sila practice, or the ethical conduct practice, the morality practice. So I just want to come into to this just on one from one angle. And that is this idea that human beings own land and that, and that the things of the land can be ours is not in line with the truth of how things are. It's completely made up. Like we made that up. We just made it up. Why? Because it suits our purpose. It suits that desire for sense pleasures, actually. Everything is connected to everything. Everything gives rise to everything else and in turn is created by everything else. How could it be, how could it be possible to extract something from that level of complex interdependence and call it mine? Yep, that's mine. Everything is connected to everything else and gives rise to everything else. How can we pluck something out of that and call it mine? Not possible. And be in in accord with the truth of things. You know, monastics don't own anything in this tradition. I mean, they have a robe, maybe, maybe like two sets of robes. I think they have two. And a bowl and maybe a depending on where they're living, a mosquito net or something, but like very, very simple. And in this way, they're really congruent with the way things are. They're like, nothing is mine. I, nothing belongs to me. I don't own anything. And they literally don't own anything. It's really quite lovely. In the 1960s, when the first astronauts went out into space and went to the moon, there's, um, I wish I had found this quote, but something about, you know, we went out to explore the stars and what we found out was the truth about ourselves. Because what they did is when they went out to the moon and turned around and looked at the earth, it's like, wow, they saw it. We had never seen the earth before from outer space. And of course, what they didn't see was lines between countries. Like, it was so obvious. Not just that, but like, there's just, it was just this blue green sphere in the midst of this huge, vast, vast space. It's like, wow, there aren't many of these out there. And we're all in this together. We're just all in this precarious little blue-green jewel floating in the middle of this huge universe. Completely different perspective than we're down here. It's like, that's your country. This is my country. Totally different perspective. So this sense of we went out to explore the universe and we ended up finding something, a deep truth about ourselves. What if we switched our view from owning things, including the land and the resources on the land or underneath the land, to being stewards of things? How might that impact the way that 
that we relate to the things of the world and, and what relationship we find ourselves in the things of the world. We would see that the things of the world are not ours to do as we please for our own pleasure and satisfaction. There naturally would be more of a consideration for all of life, including the generations that would come after us. The decisions that we would make about how we use the earth's resources and in what shape we pass on the biosphere to future generations would be made with these generations in mind. This right or wise view would engender a very natural morality of non-harming, not a should. It would just, it would spring forth naturally from that view. So just as uh, Spring was talking about how wise view was the forerunner on the eightfold path of the wise speech, action, and livelihood, the the morality section of um, the eightfold path, how we view this world and the things in it and our relationship to it in terms of owning or not owning will naturally lead to one, one will lead to one kind of morality and one will lead to another. If we view the world as it's ours to do what we please with and don't get in my way, that's going to engender a particular level of morality to the, to the world. If we, the view is that we're stewards of it, that'll engender a different morality. Another teaching or Dharma principle related to global climate change is the sense of interdependence or in the teachings called dependent co-arising. It's kind of a long term. So I posed the question earlier, how could it be possible to extract something from, from the level of complex interdependence and call it mine, right? How, how can we own this? Another really important question that we need to ask ourselves is, given such depth and breadth of interdependence, How could it be possible to harm a certain aspect of this world and in turn not harm ourselves? Of course, the answer to that question is we can't. At least intellectually, it's not, you know, it's not much of a stretch to see that we can't. Yet one of the big reasons that we've gotten ourselves into this mess is that this wisdom that knows we can't, it's not always present for us when we're making our decisions about our lives and, and, and decisions about the things of the world. It's not like right there fully present and kind of necessarily steering the ship. Our dominant culture, cultural narrative, and that could be, you could say, certainly United States, Canada, Great Britain, Europe to some degree, maybe a little bit less. You know, the, some of the dominant, at least, um, how do I want to say this? Because I don't want to use the dom- that word too, and in, in not in the correct way. The cultures that tend to have the largest impact on 
um, certainly on the resources of the world, but also um, politically, socially, they tend to ripple out into the world. Our dominant cultural narrative is that each of us deserves everything we want. And anything that gets in the way of that is just wrong. Isn't it? Americans. We deserve whatever we want and anything that gets in the way of that is not a good thing. This is a quote by David Corton. When the stories a society shares are out of tune with its circumstances, they can become self-limiting, even a threat to survival. That is our current situation. Out of tune with its circumstances, not in alignment with the way things are. It can be difficult, though, can it, to stay connected to, to truths such as our garbage and waste goes somewhere. It doesn't just disappear. <laughs> but it's like, it's hard to, like, this actually goes somewhere. It takes an increasing amount of elect- electricity to run our electronics. These have to be made somewhere. They have to be made in a factory that, that is run by electricity produced by fossil fuel. It takes electricity to charge the batteries to run them. Like, like that happens. It doesn't just happen magically, not connected to all sorts of things. It's hard to remember that like right in the moment. It's hard to remember that every time we get in our car and drive, we're putting carbon dioxide into the air. Every time we get on a plane, we're putting massive amounts of carbon dioxide in the worst part of the atmosphere. It's hard to remember the strawberry we eat in January probably flew two or 3,000 miles to get to us. It's just kind of how we live. It's hard to, in the, especially in the fast pace of our life, we have to do this and that, families, children, jobs. It's hard to actually have these truths be quite present with us a lot of the time. It's also physically invisible, at least in this culture, because we are privileged that it be invisible. Other cultures, it's not invisible. But at least until now, it's, at least here, it's invisible because we're starting to feel and see the effects, aren't we, of climate change. It's not just a theory anymore. It's actually happening. It's easy to see. I just want to point out, there is one ex- little example of this wisdom that knows we can't harm one part of this interconnected web and harm ourselves. There is one way where we've uh, actually acted on that, and wisely so. And that is in the arms race, the nuclear arms race. It was known very clearly that in an all-out nuclear confrontation, no side would win because the amount of radiation that would be released would just you know, not be good for everybody. Everyone would suffer terribly. So that was like one example of of a place where we knew harming one part of the population or, or the system would harm everything. And we knew that. And see, when we know that, when that's clear to us, we act on it. 
they're, they're very consciously has not been a big nuclear war because of that reason, because that wisdom, you might say, I mean, it's self-protecting, it's self, uh, but it's still wisdom. It's still that clear knowledge that is present as we make our decisions. So we can act appropriately when we have the right information, when, it, when it's present for us as we're making our decisions. So our task as human beings and as Dharma practitioners is to reflect on the understanding that we're, we're all connected. Not only reflect, but, be, but by being mindful of things as they, act, as they are, as they arise, understand that we're all connected through our own experience. See how conditional things are. I know some of you have seen that and you reported it. Oh, that thought happened because of that. That thought preceded that emotion. It's like, oh, things are actually connected. They're not happening in in isolation. Then, to the degree that we start to tune into this cause and effect that I'll talk more about in a second, um, then it becomes less possible to harm the environment and therefore ourselves. It's just, again, that very natural morality arises from that understanding. This is a deep and undeniable truth, this understanding. And it's one of the, the, one of the main truths or insights that we start to open to as we walk this path. So cause and effect, very, um, you could say it's karma, but they're not exactly the same, but very similar. This is like this because that is like that. As that changes, it affects this. As this changes, it affects that. Cause and effect. When we think and act in accordance with this law of cause and effect, then the outcome is one of harmony and peace. Right? Because again, we're, we're, we're congruent with how things are. There's no friction. We're going you know, with the flow. When we think and act in opposition to this law, then the outcome is one of disharmony and much suffering. So an example. An example of how we got in accord with this law is back in the 60s when uh, it was found out that DDT, the, uh, I think it was an herbicide or a pesticide, I'm not sure. I think herbicide was when they found out that it was extremely harmful actually to living beings um, and that human beings were going to suffer if they kept using it. Once that connection got made and it was really clear, DDT was banned. It's like, no. It's very simple. We see cause and effect. We see it clearly. Let's stop using this. Now, you might be thinking, or you might not, but, well, aren't we making the connection now that, that you know, of cause and effect with, with CO2 and temperature rise? Like, like don't, 
don't, aren't we getting that? The more CO2, the higher the temperature. Aren't we seeing that cause and effect, right? And aren't we even making the connection between the cause and effect of temperature increase and human suffering? Like, isn't that, isn't that cause and effect even starting to dawn? Well, yes and no. Remember that study I mentioned um, where the people were ignoring the smoke coming through the thing? There are strong forces at play that are keeping us from making this cause and effect connection. Some of these forces are outside of us, you could say, and have to do with the uh, industrial political complex that basically runs the show these days. You know, how much airtime global climate change gets on the news is a very, very calculated, conscious, controlled thing. Not just how much, but what gets reported. Yet there are forces at play inside of us that can keep us from really clearly seeing the cause and effect truths of global climate change. And it is these internal forces and how to work with them that our Dharma practice can really effectively address. I'm not saying not to address the outer forces, but in terms of looking at our own lives, looking inwards at our own hearts and minds, it's the inner forces that our Dharma practice will really shine the light on. I'll read you an introduction from a great book if you're at all interested in climate change. It's called From Me to We. Very good. Economic breakdown, I'm sorry, the author is Bob Doppelt. Economic breakdown, rising unemployment, and escalating political hostility, coming at a time of intensifying climate upheaval, storms, floods, heat waves, and droughts, have left, uh, have left us all confused and despondent. Everywhere we look, the systems we depend on seem to be collapsing. Our first reaction is to blame others for these problems, be they greedy Wall Street bankers, rapacious corporations, or dishonest politicians of either the conservative or liberal persuasion. But here's some news for you. Playing the, the blame game is merely an ingenious avoidance technique. It allows us to place the focus outside of ourselves and steer clear of having to look at our own contribution to today's troubling situations. Don't get me wrong, I know some people and organizations do bad things, but we often project onto others the very things we need to examine in ourselves. The economic, social, environmental ills we face today are of our own making. They are the outcomes of how we see and respond to the world. Unethical corporations and disreputable politicians might seem to cause the most egregious harm, but they are merely taking today's dominant cultural perspectives to the extreme. 
the challenges of society, the challenges our society faces today illuminate the changes each of us needs to make in ourselves. By the way, he's a Dharma practitioner. You can, you can hear some of the wisdom, the Dharma wisdom coming through that. How does our Dharma practice help us to look at ourselves in this way that he's talking about? I'm going to read a quote from a collection of um, Buddhist uh, sayings of the Buddha, and it's called the Dhammapada, and it's quite, it's like a pithy collection, you might say, of the most um, pithy teachings. And this is uh, the very first quote of this collection. So you might say it could have some weight to it or importance. So this is the Buddha speaking. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. Okay, but what is a corrupted mind? What is a peaceful mind that the Buddha was speaking to? How do I know what a corrupted mind, what a peaceful mind is? How do I know what actually leads to happiness? And what actually leads to suffering? Well, you've been doing it this week. This is how we know. This is how we come to find out in our own experience. Not from me or another teacher saying it or something you read in a book. You know for yourselves what actually leads to happiness and what leads to suffering. Ajahn Chah said, If you want to understand your own mind, then sit down and look at it. It's that simple. And this is exactly what we're doing here. We're learning to see that we create the world we live in moment by moment. And so when I say create, I don't mean like poof, you know, you create the paper. Not, not so much like that. But, but if there's a lot of fear in my mind and I'm not aware of it and I'm just really identified with it, I'm living in a fearful world. I'm creating a fearful world in that moment. If there's strong feelings of love and compassion, then the world I live in in that moment is a very loving and compassionate world. That's what they mean by we're we creating the world, not like necessarily physically. Although we created this, generosity created this. Yeah? This got created by the mind. Global climate change got created by the mind. It got created by strong greed and sense desire and fear, which I'll talk about in a moment. So, and this takes us to the last Dharma principle I want to talk about. And that is, if you dig down to the bottom of why human beings suffer, 
what we discover is that we mistakenly take ourselves to be solid, unchanging entities that exist separately from everything else. This is what the Buddha said. This is a deep, uh, it's called ignorance. The, the root, what's called a root defilement. And if we look closely, and that's what we're here, that's what we're learning to do here, to look closely. It's what you've been doing all week. To connect with and look at our experience and understand our experience. If we look closely, we, we can see that to the degree that our thoughts and actions revolve around what I want, what's good for me, what would be most pleasurable for me, and then conversely, what I don't want, etc. To the degree that that's like the, the predominant kind of paradigm in our mind running the show is to the degree that we don't see or understand that how we live impacts all of our life, that we're, that we're connected, deeply connected. Why? Because we're not looking. I can't see that I'm connected to you if I'm, I'm so involved with me. It's, it's not rocket science. If we're so involved with ourselves, we're, we're not going to know, we're not going to understand that we're connected. This intense focus on self and this belief in this, this separate self, it also supports a tremendous amount of fear that I won't get what I want or what I need. So a strong sense of a separate self and fear they're, they're bound together, inseparable. The more our world revolves around a solid, separate sense of self, the more afraid we are. And then the more we consume and try to manipulate our environment to quell that fear. We're basically acting out of fear. It is this consumption and manipulation of our environment in reaction to being afraid that we won't get what we want and need, which itself stems from this mistaken view that we're separate, that is at the core of why humanity has gotten to this point. Not just even in climate change, but in all sorts of difficulties that we're having. This is the, when you dig down and ask why, that's, that's the core reason. And it's at the core of why global climate change is happening. This is uh, by Dilgo Kensei Rinpoche, wonderful, beautiful being, Tibetan master from the last century. One sees that all human suffering results from one's own, one's own and others' fundamental ignorance, which mis- misconstrues the infinite display of illusory appearances as being composed of separate, permanently existing entities. I'll read that one more time. One sees that all human suffering results from one's own and others' fundamental ignorance, which misconstrues the infinite display of illusory appearances as being composed of separate, permanently existing entities. Remember wise view? Well, this is wrong view. This view, separate self. 
this wrong view is a, a self-centered view of the world and not seeing clearly how we create our own suffering. But when we connect through training our hearts and minds to connect, to be present, by connecting with our own experience, then we can come to know how does it actually feel to focus so much on ourselves by spending our resources of time, attention, creativity, money, so as to just make ourselves more comfortable, have more pleasant experiences, and keep away unpleasant experiences. How does that, what is that actual experience like? We want to look and see for ourselves, each of us. And you'll see what you see, but when I look, for me, if I get caught in that, or when I do get caught in that, it feels isolating, deadening, cut off, not connected to life. And then we want to look and see, how does it actually feel to share our time, energy, money, other resources with others? Basically what Spring was talking about. How does it feel when we're generous? We want to look and see. It feels good. It feels right. It feels enlivening, connecting, open. We love that. Even when we're not used to. One, one real simple example that I've noticed and other people have mentioned too, just very simple. Maybe after a significant weather event like a, a blizzard or a hurricane, let's say they're your neighbor that you just really never talk to. It's not that I'm not talking to them, but whatever. You don't really communicate much. But maybe after this, the blizzard or the hurricane, you know, you, you call, you go over and you ask them, you okay, you need anything, electricity's out, I have a generator and a freezer, if you want to keep your food over there, please bring it over. It's like we feel ourselves open and be generous with our resources. It feels so lovely to do that. And something like, something like a big weather event, what it does it takes us out of our little world and, and in a way it tells us it's okay to do that now. It's okay to reach out now. This is kind of what's called for now. It gives us permission and we jump on it because we love it. So based on all of this, how can we respond to global climate change? What would be an appropriate response? This response needs to include a change in worldview from each individual for themselves to one where we're all in it together. And as Bob wrote in his book, From Me to We, such a great title. And this is supported by neuroscience that tells us we're wired to cooperate. That's how we're actually put together. And also evolutionary science that says, yes, we went through a time, a natural evolutionary time, where it was kind of, of survival as a species. Every person or maybe every small band for themselves, we needed to do that to survive. It was appropriate then, 10,000 years ago. But that time has passed. And we are evolutionary-wise in a different time that what's appropriate at this time is to be mutually supportive and cooperative. Listen to what Joanna Macy has to say about this change in worldview in her book, Active Hope. What, 
What inspires people to embark on projects or support campaigns that are not of immediate personal benefit? At the core of our consciousness is a wellspring of caring and compassion. This aspect of ourselves, which we might think of as our connected self, can be nurtured and developed. We can deepen our sense of belonging in the world. Like trees extending their root systems, we can grow into connection, thus allowing ourselves to draw from a deeper pool of strength, accessing the courage and intelligence that we so greatly need right now. This dimension of the great turning, which is just a, a part of a teaching of hers, arises from shifts taking place in our hearts and minds and our views of reality. It involves insights and practices that resonate with venerable spiritual traditions while in alignment with revolutionary new understandings from science. So it's not that we don't have a wellspring of caring and compassion. You do. We all do. That, that isn't the problem. The problem is that these minds that we are constantly creating the world with moment by moment are often deluded and not seeing things as they actually are. From not seeing cause and effect to not seeing the incredible interdependence of things to believing in a solid separate self, we project this mistaken reality onto life and then live life as though it were real, as though that were real and make decisions individually and collectively based on that. This is Nyosho Kempo Rinpoche, Tibetan teacher. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. When we understand this, we see that we are nothing. And being nothing, we see that we are everything. That is all. So the result of this delusion in the human heart and mind is widespread feelings of fear, isolation, and disconnection from life. The result in the outer world is simply a manifestation of this collective, deluded, and fearful inner world. So I want to suggest that a very appropriate way, the appropriate way, to address global climate change is to look at the root issues of why we do what we do. Understand it, each of us, for ourselves. If we can summon up the courage to look closely at our hearts and minds and see for ourselves how the mind gets fooled into thinking things are a certain way, how we mistakenly create our own and others' suffering, then not only will we begin to mitigate the causes and therefore the effects of global climate change, but we will spontaneously open to that wellspring of caring and compassion that Joanna Macy spoke of. We'll open to a level of energy and creativity that has not been known to us. And although when we feel that, we'll know it was already there we'll begin to get in touch with the depth of our natural love and compassion for all of life. 
and the mind's natural radiance that maybe we touched into this morning a little bit in the meditation, the mind's natural radiance that shines the light on the truth of suffering and its causes and on the truth of happiness and its causes, that will dawn. It will begin to be clear to us. If you think about it, if, you know, if there ever were a more perfect situation for Dharma practice than climate, global climate change, I, I don't know what it would be. It's very, uh, it's actually a great situation to practice with. It's demanding us to engage in Dharma practice, to see things as they are. It's screaming for us to do that. And if we do, we can turn, like we can completely turn this, this impending human tragedy into a vehicle for awakening of the human heart and mind. Because it's such an intense thing, that, that the power of that intensity can be transformed into power of awakening. That's what Joanna Macy is talking about in her book. And it all starts by learning to be present with ourselves and just what is in the moment. It all starts with that and it actually all ends with that. I want to end um, with a quote that kind of speaks to um, this, this wonderful transformation that can happen from taking something that's difficult and having it be this, this, this jewel for awakening. It's by Jennifer, Jennifer Wellwood and the title of the poem is Unconditional. So I'll read the poem and then we'll just sit quietly for a few minutes. It's late, one minute. Willing to discover, willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fear, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed into its radiant jewel-like essence. I bow to the one who has made it so, who has crafted this master game. To play it is purest delight, to honor its form, true devotion. So through the training of our hearts and minds to connect ever more deeply with life, may we turn global climate change into its radiant jewel-like essence. <laughs>